Thanks for joining us in our series on the book of Ephesians. In this letter, we get a thorough view of God's cosmic plan of reconciliation and reunification in Jesus Christ. Its truths are vital to the Christian's understanding of personhood and the church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. Good morning. What a wonderful time to be together, both to worship our God and King, but then also through that worship, be built up, be edified. I think it's a wonderful truth that as we come to, in a sense, serve our Lord and worship Him, we also serve one another. We also continue to see God's grace as we are praising Him. We are taught in this way. Let's turn to Ephesians 1 together. Now, as you do this, um, if you didn't get a chance to, maybe you came in a little bit later to remind you, each week between the two services, about 10.35, we gather up front here uh, to pray for the Riyal Malayu people, that God would save their souls, and that He would do a great work, that they'd be a rich people group, and they would be a, kind of an epicenter in Indonesia for more gospel growth there. So you're welcome, please, to join us on Sunday mornings, about 10.35, right here up front. Uh, also, as you are turning there, um, I want to, to take a moment to say welcome to all those that are still joining us from live stream. Uh, we miss you. We want you to be here with us. We long for the day that you'll be able to come back. We are praying for you and asking God to give grace to you in the midst of being away. We realize that it's difficult. It's difficult for us. So we pray continually for you. We love you and uh, can't wait to get back together. Let's read Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. Uh, I promise we're not starting all over again. Actually, what we're doing today is going back and looking at the whole. We're going to get the whole book of Ephesians, and I promise this will be the last sermon that I preach on Ephesians, at least for a time. Let's read Ephesians 1, 7 through 10, and then we'll pray. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Let's take a minute and pray together. Lord, we praise you, the God of all the universe, and also the God who's been given to us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We worship you for who you are this morning, praising you, the one who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, the one who is truly the greatest of all, We humbly bow before you this morning as your subjects, but also as your sons and daughters who you love. As Josh has led us through confession, we join together and say, we are not worthy, but Lord, you are. May we be repenters. Would you teach us to turn from our sin so that we might know and love you and proclaim Christ by our testimony? We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word that speaks to us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who indwells us. We thank you for the opportunity to come together as a body for the sake of hearing the word preached. And I pray this morning then that you would open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts, that we would understand your word. Lord, you've given us everything that we need. I pray for humility, and I pray that you would change our hearts to be ready to receive and to obey. We thank you for your great love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I ask you, what is theology for? 
What's the, what's the purpose of doctrine and teaching? And as we work, work through Scripture, we get all these different things that we understand about God. But my question to this morning to, to start us off is, what is theology for? What's the purpose? I mean, Paul gives us theology here in this book, right? He actually gives us past theology, what's happened already, what's going on right now, present. And he actually tells us what's going to happen in the future. And in the midst of this, he is giving us an enormous narrative but my question for us is, in the midst of all that, all this glorious doctrine of our salvation and, and our, our blamelessness and our holiness in Him and the sovereign work of election that He's done, my question is, what is it for? Why did He tell us all this incredible stuff? I, I'm thankful that I have uh, uh, so many friends in here that care about theology. You. You care about learning doctrine. You care about knowing it, making sure doctrine is right and true and faithful to the Word of God but it's not an end in of itself. Doctrine never is. What is it for then? What is this theology all about? Uh, just for a minute, think about this. Theology is not philosophy, and it's not divine theory, as though somehow we'll go think about these things and then come back to our normal lives and live it all out. And that's really cool to think about, and we'll kind of have this experience of worship, and then we'll go back to our regular lives. Theology tells us the true story of the world, like God's story, like what it's all actually about. And that means it's really, really important. That's why so many times throughout the scriptures we see them say, get doctrine right. It matters because it matters the way that you live. You must understand the true story of the world. This morning, I am going to come through the letter of Ephesians together. Instead of, at the beginning of all this, we read through the entire book, if you remember this. This is a great exercise for us. We read, literally, I read the entire thing through. I'm not going to do that this morning. I realized, I went back and uh, I listened to it myself, and I, I'm ashamed to say there are times where I listen to myself read and I just totally zoned out. And I don't think you're probably that much better than me about this. So I know, although it's a wonderful and necessary activity, but it's possible to do it once and then this time do something a little bit different. I want to paraphrase or help us understand interpretation of the whole so that we can see the whole book at one shot and learn what we're supposed to from Ephesians. We've obviously been in the nitty-gritty working through each of these passages and they're right for us to do so. That's why we do this, expository preaching, coming back to the text and allowing it to speak to us. This morning's going to be a little bit different. You're going to see me pull way back and try to help us understand the whole book or the letter of Ephesians, what Paul's trying to do, and why it's important for us. That's my goal is this morning so that we'd be able to do that. So it'll be a little different, but you're going to notice I'm going to go straight through the text, the whole thing. I'm going to spend the majority of my time on the first three chapters, but we'll start to see by the end why the second three chapters exist. So you feel free, if you want to look on, you can, or if it's easier for you to kind of get all that by paying attention and looking as, as I kind of lead us through, that's fine too. I would encourage you kind of as a, 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 remem a remembrance of the greatest hits of what we've worked through, that as you go through there, you remember different pieces and say, yes, I want to go back and think about this. This is good for my Christian growth. Oh, this is really helpful. I, I want to pray this prayer. Or maybe this is the way I should respond to God. These are all good things. So feel free if you have a pencil to, to kind of note those things. But what I'm going to be trying to do is pull way back and give us the whole. So right from the beginning, Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he does that great thing that he always does is he gives the greeting, that warm greeting, grace and peace. 
blessing in the sense of these people asking for God to do this from the Father that is his, and by his will, he's an apostle. But then he opens up with this benediction, or a benediction, I just mean a praise to God. He takes his time to actually bless God's name. He blesses, if you remember, he blesses God's name for all that we have in Jesus Christ. Kind of verse 3 is almost the, the title of it. So let me just read verse 3 for us. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So we know this. We already know this from what our doctrine says, but it's in Christ that we're chosen, elect. It's in Christ that we are sanctified. It's in Christ that we're predestined to be adopted as sons of God. It's in Christ that we are redeemed and forgiven by his sacrificial death. It's astounding. And in all of this, it's to the end that all of creation and we would praise his glorious grace. But then Paul tells us that this wasn't a recent decision of his. This wasn't plan B. He didn't say, oh no, sin came around. What am I supposed to do about this? I know, I'll send Jesus who will die and we'll take care of the thing that I wasn't ready for. No, 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 no. We actually realize that this did not take him by surprise, but rather that this has always been his plan. In Christ, we have been redeemed and forgiven, but as we see here, it's not a recent decision. It wasn't plan B. All of this was according to God's eternal purpose and will. This has been what he is planning to do. And because he is wise and gracious, he has made known the mystery of his will in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. What I mean is, in Christ's death, that all that that accomplishes, right? In Christ's death, God has made known to us the mystery of his will. The fact that one day, heaven and earth would again be joined. Now, this is really important as we're thinking about this. This is what Paul is trying to communicate for us. He is saying that one day, heaven and earth will be joined again, that God and man will be united in perfect unity and fellowship. What we see here is that God, in Christ Jesus, will take all things in heaven and on earth and sum them up, bring them to their intended end. All of creation, that which was torn apart by the ravages of sin and rebellion, will one day be brought under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ the King. This, this will happen. That's what he's telling us. Again, he's shown us what happened at the beginning, and now he's telling us this is what's going to happen in the future. This is a big picture that you need to understand. Let me just kind of sum up verse 7 through 10 then. In him we have redemption through his blood, making known to us the mystery of his will as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now in Christ's first coming, his first advent, in his perfect living, in his dying, in his resurrection, in his ascension up to the right hand of the Father, in his first coming, he has begun to accomplish his ultimate purpose in all of the universe. He is, uh, how do I say this? He's working his plan. Again, not something new. He's not reacting to figure out how to do this. He is working his plan. He is setting the administration of his will and purpose in motion and continuing on. And in this, he shows us that we are actually a part of something far bigger than just what we experience in the day-to-day -day living that we experience here and can see. This is actually about cosmic reconciliation. It, it actually is not just trying to use like big fancy terms to make us feel like we're more important than we are. Paul is showing us what is actually happening. 
This is not just about what we can see or know or hear on this little physical planet. It certainly is important, and it is real, by the way, but it is not only that. He, meaning Christ, has sealed the deal. Remember that what he's done, as he has received the wrath of God at the cross, raising or being risen from the grave as he ascended, and then he was seated to the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. This is really important, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. In short, then, he's king over all the earth, but that's not the only place he's king. Think about what he just said. As he's ascended, he has now earned the right to be king over all. The ascension is really, really important. And as we work through the resurrection it's coming in coming, coming weeks, we'll actually follow it up with a, with a sermon probably about the ascension as well. Understanding when Christ takes this place, we are now settled under the king of the universe. And things, again, are not going back to how they were before. It's, a, it's amazing. One day in the fullness of time, he, Christ, will sum all things up. He will complete his plan. And when he does, all things in heaven and on earth will be summed up in Jesus. There will be no more rebellion. There will be no more competing powers. There will be no more groaning under the dominion of some lesser little prince. No, 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 no. All things will be right under God. And there will only be God and man reunited in all of creation under King Jesus in harmony. Now, this is an important place for us to realize that in this note, he is telling us the purpose of Ephesians. He is letting us in to understand why this matters for even me and you today, helping us understand that it's much bigger than this. He's laying down some heavy theology, looking back to our election before the foundation of the world, but also revealing what is to come in the future. He is setting us then, get this, he is setting us in the middle of the grand story of the universe of all of time. He's showing us where we belong. It's incredible. He's helping us see who we are, where we are, and when we are in this story. As he finishes this opening praise to God in this first couple verses, he reminds these Christians of their sure inheritance. What has happened in Christ has gained them an inheritance that's incorruptible. Those who have heard the word of truth, the gospel, and believed it are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. I mean, that is incredible. And really, if we know the rest of the the Old Testament, should be like mind-blowing to us that the Spirit is now given to his people. But it's only the beginning. It's not the end. All of this is something bigger. The Spirit is the guarantee of the inheritance until we acquire possession of it, of the inheritance. Uh, The gift of the Holy Spirit and the coming inheritance, all of it is not meant to be given to us so that we say, ah, we the recipients must have been worthy of the gift. We must really be something. But rather for us to say, my goodness, the giver is amazing. In other words, the grace of God is on display, the givingness, the blessingness of what God does. And therefore, it is to the praise of his glorious grace. If you look through chapter one, you're gonna see it over and over and over again. He talks about to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace, that we might be to the praise of his glory. That's called a doxological view of scripture and history, that it is to God's glory. No one else gets to share in this glory in the sense that it's up to him to be the one that narrates and finishes the story. In Jesus Christ, we may receive benefits, but it is God's glory alone. And so we see this is actually all about him.
So that's that opening praise. After he's finished with this, he knows it's gonna about, he's, he's about to drop some big stuff on them. And so he enters into a prayer for these saints. He begins with thanksgiving to God. He sees these believers as an occasion to thank God for his wonderful works. Um, he doesn't thank God that God has given these believers to him. Like, I think that's the way we often do thanksgiving. We think mainly about, oh, this is something that I have received, and so I will thank God for it. And by the way, that's a right thing to do. We should thank God for the food. Thank God for our gift of salvation that we have experienced. Thank God for uh, children. Thank God for our church. Those are all right things. Paul doesn't actually do that here. Think about what he does. He thanks God for doing the work in these other believers that only God can do. He says, thank you, Lord, for doing your will. Thank you for being God. Thank you for taking dead people and making them alive. This is how he opens up this prayer for these people. They are an occasion for thanking God for spiritual blessings in Christ. Knowing the subject matter then, in this letter will be deep and vitally important for them, Paul prays that God would give these believers the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, of God. He prays that they would know the hope to which they have been called, that they would know the riches of God's glorious inheritance, and that they would also know, this is the big one, the immeasurable greatness of God's power. Now, I said such a big one is because it's important for us to connect this cosmic reality and real life for us. Think about what he's doing. Paul is praying that they would, that they would connect their current reality, the reality of being Christ's church, with the reality of the almighty Christ who is the head of the church. He is the king at the right hand of the Father. And the end of that prayer, that's when he goes off to talk about the one who's ascended. It's the same power that rose Christ from the dead, the same power that seated him at the right hand of the Father above all principalities and authorities and rulers in heavenly places. That's the power that put him there. And that's the power that Paul prays for these believers. That's astounding. That that's the power that he has prayed that they would understand and live according to that. This is the prayer. That they would have the spirit of wisdom in knowing God, that they would know the hope that they've been called to, the riches of God's inheritance and the saints, and that they would know God's unfettered divine power for them. This is Paul's prayer for them. But Paul then turns, after he's done praying, to shine a light, a spotlight on us as Christians. With great clarity, he shows us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, willingly walking according to the leadership of a lesser, terrible, treasonous king or prince, the prince of the power of the air. We were completely given over to our passions, our desires, basically whatever we wanted. We wanted to live for us. And that's what we were given over to. We were completely given over to these things. And by that then, we were like the rest of mankind, the rest of all mankind, children of wrath. In other words, I, I like to say it this way, we belong to the family that was running headlong into judgment of God's terrible wrath. That's who we were. And while we were dead, with no signs of life, with all of our own angry rebellion against God, the great king, God does something that blows us away. In his divine mercy, he loves us. And he sends Jesus to save us as sinners. And he takes the wrath that we so rightly deserve. 
In Christ, he saved us. He raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ. And if we know this passage at all, we know it's all by grace. It is all because of his good gifts that this is happening. There's absolutely nothing that you and I could do to receive the blessings. We were dead. He made us alive. We hated him, scoffed him, rejected. And instead of judgment, he chose to shower us with his grace. He reached out and saved us through faith in Jesus Christ alone. It was God's glorious gift of love that he should make us alive in him and grant us to be saved. And at this point, as he is talking about our salvation experience, the one that we are so familiar with, chapter 2 of anything in Ephesians, as he's talking about this and describing what's going on in the background where God is working, he tells us that all this salvation is not an end in and of itself. It isn't the main point, which should kind of jar us because I think that the majority of us think that way. But we certainly think that, like, I'm just glad that someday I'll make it into heaven as I've trusted in Jesus and his grace. This is so good. But Paul won't stop there. This is another little glimpse into seeing the purpose of Ephesians. He tells us that in his sovereign plan, that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That we are not just to be saved, but that we are saved for good works. This is what we were saved to do. We were saved to walk in the actions of Jesus Christ, our King. To be kingdom citizens. To show the connection between heaven and earth. To be citizens who show to all people that God and man have been reunited to the action of Jesus Christ because of all that he has done. And at this moment, he wants to show how, just how radical it is to be a kingdom of heaven. So he uh, brings up their social and ethnic background. Remember, he's not speaking to people from the diaspora, like scattered Jews. He's not speaking to Israel. He is speaking to Gentiles, those that don't know God. He's writing to people who are not Jews. He calls them to remember that they were separated from Christ. Listen to this word, alienated from Israel. Strangers to the covenant of promise. And they really had no hope at all. I mean, their lineage, if you think about it this way, their lineage was leading them to death and judgment. Their only hope as Gentiles then was to become a proselyte, was to become a Jew, to get circumcised, to try to start following the law, to learn the covenant promises so that they might learn to believe in the one true God of Israel. That's the only way they had any way of actually becoming one with God. Their only hope was to find it in becoming a Jew. They didn't have that. They didn't do that. They were Gentiles. They're separated. They're totally ignorant of the ways of God and his expectations. And so they were God's enemies, and therefore Israel's enemies as well. But Paul reminds them that in Christ Jesus, these two groups, the ones who had access to God and those who didn't have access to God, are now one people, one new man in Christ Jesus. But as we think about this thing, we really have to say, and I've kind of given it away, but like, how in the world is that possible? How could God do away with the distinction that he himself made between Jew and Gentile? How could he do this? How could he accept a Gentile, uh, you know, as he did a Jew? It all came down to one person. Insert Sunday school answer, Jesus. That's, that's correct. 
It all came down to the one who perfectly fulfilled every part of the law. It came down to the one who fulfilled every promise ever made about the Messiah. It came down to the one who fulfilled every prophecy, the one who suffered under the wrath of God. It was the one who truly was, as Isaiah talks about, the servant of Yahweh. Christ himself is our peace. Listen to Ephesians 2, 17 through 18. And he came, <clears throat> talking about Jesus, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. It's incredible what he has done. But that's not all. Not only do we have peace, something spectacular has happened to us in Christ. And we need to pay attention here because our identity is changing and we're starting to realize that we actually have a larger purpose than just to be trophies of grace that God would look at. Don't get me wrong, we certainly are trophies of his grace, but we're not trophies of grace that just sit in some cabinet somewhere. The amazing thing is that God uses these trophies of grace to do the work of telling more people that they ought to become trophies of grace as well. He uses us as means. It's incredible. Look at uh, verse 19 through 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place by God. It's unbelievable that he does this for them. In Christ's work of salvation, we are made into members of the household of God. We are now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, being built together into a holy temple. I mentioned already that we are to tell other people that they would be trophies of grace. But think about what our identity has now become. Think about the, the corporate identity of all those different ones who have known Jesus Christ. Because he doesn't talk about language that you used to be this and now you're this, so go forward as an individual and do this. He actually says now that you're part of the family, now you are a member of the household of God. Now you are one who is being built up as part of this structure that is the holy temple of God, the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In Christ's work of salvation, we're made into members. We are now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, being built together into a holy temple that is to house God. It's incredible. The temple in Jerusalem, if we think back for a moment, the temple is created, as a wonderful as it is, is nothing compared to the temple that he is making in his people. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's actually wonderful that he was able to give grace to his people through it. I'm saying that what he is doing, instead of making it out of stones and special tapestries and different rods and all this stuff to put this temple together, he is making it by making you and me. And he is putting us together as the temple of God, where God would dwell. It points back even further than that. Right? So let's go back to creation. Let's go back to the garden, the garden of God, Eden a place that could be and rightly is called then a temple. Think about what's happening there in this place where man and God are united, where they walk together in fellowship, where in a sense heaven and earth meet, where God is united to man in harmony. We're experiencing now in Jesus Christ reconciliation of God and man, the reunification of God and man, heaven and earth coming back together. This is what's so incredible. It points us back to this and shows us that this unification that's happening 
is something that has been predicted for long ago, and we see even a couple of different places where it's happened before, at least inklings of it. But now, as he is doing it in his people, it's forever going to happen, as Christ has now taken the seat on the throne. And at this point, Paul comes back into the storyline. He's going to like, okay, I told you it's some incredible stuff, but like, now how do I play a part in all of this? Like, oh yeah, Paul's writing this, I forgot. So, so let, me, let me explain what my part is, Paul says, how this all fits into the picture of salvation history. He tells them that God has graciously given him the stewardship of making known the mystery of Christ to the Gentiles. Paul has received, remember that he has received revelation from Jesus Christ. Christ spoke to him and helped him understand and grew him up and discipled him. And now what Paul is saying is divine revelation. It's under the Spirit's work and continually he is writing these things and speaking these things as one who has been revealed the truth of God by Jesus Christ. This, this gospel reconciles God and man. At this point, that we understand that Paul has a job from God. His job is to preach the unsearchable riches to the Gentiles. In other words, he would evangelize. He would tell them the gospel. But it's bigger than that. He is actually also to do more, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery. Now, let me say that phrase again because it may seem garbled to you, and I'm going to explain it. To bring to light for everyone what was the plan of the mystery. So let me smooth this out a little bit. It was Paul's job to preach the riches of Christ in the gospel. Paul's already told us that he is he's supposed to be doing this. He's understanding that that's what his job is. But if we understand this, he does this, he is doing something bigger. He's already told us this in the, in the opening benediction. But here he's saying that it's his job also to work that truth into the church, and that they would understand that there's something bigger at risk here, or at stake. Why? Well, that's one of the most important and interesting points of all. He tells us that he's doing this so that through the church, not Paul, I love this, it's through the church that the incredible manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authority in the heavenly places. Now, you may think that we are being sensationalist and we talk about cosmic reunification, but look at chapter 3, verse 10. Why did Paul need to evangelize the Gentiles and teach the plan of God to all people? so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That means this. The church and what we're experiencing right now is actually the theater to which these rulers and authorities look in and they see the manifold wisdom of God playing out. They watch as Jesus Christ came. They see that he saved individuals. And now they even watch as Jew and Gentile Completely different people are now united in the person of Jesus Christ. And they are watching as God is being reconciled to man. And they're blown away by this fact. They, 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 they know that it's happened, but this is incredible to them. As all the different orders of angels and demons look on, they are amazed to see that God is really doing this thing. They are watching God put his eternal purpose into motion. All of God's plans are materializing in Jesus. They come to life, and at this point, there is no return. I mean, think about this. Jesus has died. He's risen, and he's ascended, and is seated at the right hand of God with power. So then through Christ's work, he has accomplished the reconciling of God and man. And through Christ's work, he has united those who are far off and those who are near. 
And that's that very practical understanding of when he looks, he says this mystery is that Jews and Gentiles would be united through the person of Jesus Christ. It's amazing, this example. Uh, but I'll just say, it's not only an example. Uh, think about it for a moment. It's through this people, through the church, that the kingship of Jesus Christ will be spread throughout all the earth. He has given us a commission in Matthew 28, has he not? And listen to these words, because it's going to sound very similar. All authority in heaven and on earth, this is not an accident, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the true king of the whole universe, not just of the earth, but of all of the heavens as well. And so, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, I want to make sure I'm clear. I am not saying that we ultimately put Christ um, you know, in his kingship and we bring this whole thing together. It's all on us to do so. No. We aren't saying that this is up to us to bring all these things to a close. Christ, Christ doesn't need us in that way. Uh, he will do this. We look forward to the, day when, to the day when he will return and crush every enemy and rule supreme forever. He doesn't, therefore, need us, but he does choose us and choose to use us. We find here that his church has been given a commission Remember that Paul has told us that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And as the church begins to act as Paul teaches us to act in accord with the gospel of Jesus Christ as agents of reconciliation, we then are the means by which Christ uses to save the world. That's not to say that we are the ones that are saving the world. Just listen to 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. You remember this. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Catch that again. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors. That's why Paul is preaching to the Gentiles and teaching everyone what the mystery of Christ is. He is showing us who we are and how we ought to live in light of that truth. And by this time, Paul knows, again, that he's overwhelming us with an enormous amount of theology and doctrine. He knows that he's blow it's blowing our minds. And so it's important that Paul prays for his people again. I mean, he's such a good pastor. <laughs> I learned from this. He is knowing that. And what he says in response is, let me call on God to help you. Let me call on God who is the Father of all things. And out of the riches of his glory, I'm asking that God would strengthen you. Strengthen these saints with power in their inner being through the Spirit of God. He knows that the tasks that have been given as ministers of reconciliation are completely impossible for humans to do by themselves. And so he prays. He prays that Christ would take up residence in their hearts through faith. In other words, he is praying for faith 
in Christ to the point that you and I would kind of look like houses that were flipped, that we kind of look like Jesus is the one who decided to set up shop here, and we changed to be more like him. He prays that these believers would have the strength to comprehend with all the rest of the church what is the breadth and length and height and depth and their directions, Paul, that they would truly know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. And then he prays that they would be mature. The way he says is that they would be filled with the fullness of God. And as he closes his prayer, he praises God and teaches us to pray even bigger prayers. If you notice at the end there, he praises God, he attributes God glory forever and ever to the one who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. I mean, Paul knows that he just told us in the first half of this book, of this letter, is absolutely overwhelming. He understands that. And we need divine help. And we need complete rehabilitation. We need to be those who were dead, who are now made alive, and now we need to be made to look like Jesus Christ. We know that forensically or in justice, God has declared us righteous. This is wonderful in Christ. But now as we grow, he is making us in this space and time more like Jesus. And we're thankful that's what he exactly is praying for, that we would grow up in Christ. I mean, we think about these things If these things are true, I mean, if we really believe them, I think we rightly wonder then, how in the world are we to move forward from this? Like, If all these ideas of cosmic reconciliation that we're taking part in somehow are true, how are we supposed to move forward? I mean, this theology is immense. The teaching is cosmic and the purpose is eternal. And the scope is just too big for us. So how in the world are we supposed to live as one's who are playing this important role in history. Think about what what we've said is happening in this real-life theater at which the heavenly rulers look and wonder in amazement at the manifold wisdom of God. How are you and I to act? As we've traveled through this already, in the first three chapters, we're amazed by God's grace, and we praise Him for it, and we start to understand who we are and the role that we're supposed to play in the history of the world. But our first application is simple. We have to believe this story. We have to know, although we hear over and over again all the different competing stories that we hear throughout the world, that this is the only one that is actually true. What we see here is the truth. And I want to encourage us, I want to command us to obey this truth and to know and to embrace this truth. Again, there's many competing stories, but none of them are actually true. They have pieces of truth but only in the risen Son, Jesus Christ, has the truth been revealed. And again, I'm not saying that we are something to boast in. No, God has revealed this truth to us. So we ought to embrace it. Allow it to shape you and me. And feel the weight of the eternal purposes of God coming true right here in our own little church. And believe that we are a part of something far bigger than just modern Christianity in 2021. We are a part of God's work to reconcile the world to himself. We are a part of God's plan to show his wisdom to the heavenly rulers. And as we greatly desire to live in this ultimate reality, we should rightly ask ourselves this question, how am I supposed to live? How does this work out? If the temple had such <laughs> immense detail about how it was to be put together, if we look back to Exodus, 
Jordan and I were talking about this earlier. All the different things about this being this way and this had to be put this way and this had to go this way and make sure you have these people do this thing and all these different immense amount of different detail. That temple, how is this temple supposed to be put together? What should it look like for us as different pieces of this puzzle that makes up this beautiful temple of God? How are we to do our lives as, as playing this part? How am I supposed to walk in these cosmic realities? Now, I use that term on purpose. Because if you remember, chapters 4 and 5 get their whole structure around five uses of the word walk. Remember, he does this in 4.1, 4.17, 5.1, 5.8, 5.15. He tells us how we ought to walk. What he's really telling us is how to live in light of this truth. In the beginning of chapter 4, he tells us how to walk as a united body maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He shows us that each part of the body of Christ has been given to us for the benefit of all. Think about like each elbow and thumbnail and kneecap working together and it's important for us to grow up in Christ. Then the second half of chapter 4, he tells us how to walk in righteousness. And by that I mean he tells us, no, no, don't just continue to live the way that you've always lived. Don't live as though the ones that, the ones that are under the power of the prince of the power of the air. Stop living by your old desires and wants and just living like everybody else. You're actually to live in righteousness and holiness. You are to be different than the rest of the world. Your master is not Satan. You have a new Lord, the one who is over all of creation, meaning heaven and earth. He shows us that this is who we are, and we are to walk as ones who live by the truth, not by the deceitful lies of our old master. And then in chapter 5, he starts by telling us to walk in love as imitators of God, not with sexual immorality. And he shows us that walking in sexual impurity does not speak the truth about God or about our new identity in Christ. And then he goes on in verse 8, he tells us to walk as children of light, exposing the darkness so that the world around us would be reconciled to God. Verse 15, he tells us to walk as wise ones, who understand that the days are evil. We know that we have been given the Holy Spirit of God, but he tells us that this reality must be accepted by faith, that we must be filled by the Holy Spirit and rely on him as we walk as wise people. It will take his power to live rightly as kingdom citizens, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This, then, is how we are to walk. But, he goes further, he shows us that those who walk in these kingdom realities are not to adopt the fallen abuses or abdications of secular society. He introduces the household code. He shows us at the end of chapter 5 and then going into chapter 6, authority and submission, showing these relationships that ought to be. They're not relics of a, some bygone ancient society that is dominated by males full of ego and power-hungry people but rather these are God-ordained structures of authority and submission for a signpost for the glory of God woven into the fabric of society for our good. Authority, guys, especially here, is a great responsibility. It is not something to be abused, but something to serve with that we will answer for. All of us, as we understand this, realize this authority and submission is something that shows God understanding that we are responsible for it. It is good to be used for the good of the whole. And in this, God declares himself to us in the world. So we get to the end of chapter six, or like the last half of chapter six, 
we realize that this cosmic reunification is not complete and that we have enemies all around us. Remember what chapter 6 is about? Put on the armor of God. Why? Because the battle that you're facing is not against flesh and blood. You're in the midst of a battle. What he says then is to take up every virtue that he has given to us that we might do battle for the sake of Christ our King. It's no surprise then that in the midst of this call to fervent, all-encompassing prayer means that we have to reach out and ask God for strength. He helps us understand that in our sojourning, in our pilgrimage here, whatever we get, 70, 80, 90 years, less or more, I'm not sure, whatever we get, we are pilgrims understanding that we need God and God alone for strength to continue to do this work. As we saw at the end, to stand firm in this evil day. In our context, we know how to walk, but we only have to do so by the power of Christ. What I'm trying to say then is that in all of this, Paul has given us our application of what we're supposed to do. Chapter 1 through 3 leaves us this enormous question like, what are we supposed to do if this is really the truth? Chapters 4, 5, and 6 tell us how to do it. It's the working out of all of this. If we're going to ask this question and you and I wonder how to work or live or walk in the midst of this cosmic reconciliation, we have to look no further than the Bible. And if you want the Cliff's Notes, just two chapters 4, 5, and 6. He is showing us what it means to walk as those who are part of this cosmic reconciliation. Now, let me go back to the initial question that I asked as we started. What is theology for? What's the purpose? Paul has given us a lot of heavy theology here in Ephesians. But this isn't just giving us philosophy or divine theory or things that some people should consider, <clears throat> but you know, not everybody. In this letter, Paul is telling us the true story of the world. He is telling us who we are and why he put us here. In the second half of the book, he tells us what we should be doing, how to live as kingdom citizens. So as we consider the book of Ephesians, as we draw to a close now, we come to know our story. We start to realize this has shown us where we belong, what we are doing, what God is doing, and how you and I, in a sense, are a dot in this huge mosaic of all that he is doing. And yet he has called us to live a certain way in that life. That being said, knowing our place in this history helps us to live as we were designed to live. I'll make three more comments then. Out of all that, there's so many applications we could go here. But I'll say this. We were designed then, first of all, to live with one another as brothers and sisters. In true Christ-like harmony, we are to embrace our brothers and sisters for all our warts and problems. When you look around you, I know you don't like everybody. That's okay. But you have to love them. And hopefully, God will bring more than just like begrudging attempts at love, but a heart that would give yourself for one another, realizing that God gave each part of his body for the building up in love into Christ. So that when you look around, you realize, it doesn't matter if you like or not like, what we need to do is be thankful and join one another in unity and trust that the Spirit, what he has done in making us one, will continue and that we can have joy in that and that we can not just get along like trying to be a committee, but rather love one another truly and move forward in Christ-like humility and unity that he describes here. Again, I, I think this is really helpful for us. It's a major thing that Paul is showing us, that we have to understand that we are members of the household of God, and that makes us, in a sense, 
all level at the foot of the cross as one body. Second thing, we were designed in Christ for good works. We saw this in Ephesians 2.10. I think we, we veer away, and rightly so sometimes, from preaching only good works, right? We don't want to just like be moralists or legalists, like it's all we preach is good work and you got to check off this off your box and that off your box. We've swung so far to the other end that we forget that Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we were made for good works, that we should be righteous, pursuing holiness, putting to death wickedness in our lives. Stop looking like the world and have deliverance from these sins. Trusting Christ so that we look more today like Jesus than we did yesterday. So as our life progresses, as we walk in Christ, we look more and more like the image of his dear son. Knowing that God is gracious and good, we want to pursue good works that he has made, he has prepared for us, that we would walk in Christ like these and we would actually live holy lives. Again, this is not just for the super Christians, guys. This is for each and every one of us who know Christ as Savior and Lord. We are called to good works, to walking according to the truth. Lastly, I'll just say this then. You and I were designed also to tell other human beings about this great king who has come and who has taken his rightful place on the throne and who will one day come again to crush every enemy and bring total unity throughout the cosmos. In other words, we are ambassadors for Christ, proclaimers of the king. Our message is one of absolute hope. It is good it is joy. It is happy. Because without it, they are against the God of the universe, the all-powerful, mighty one who will crush sin. But there is hope in Jesus Christ who has given himself for his people. And so we carry that ministry, that message of reconciliation. So we're called today, even now as we see this, to tell that message. That happens in our homes. That happens in our neighborhoods. That happens in our families. That happens, uh, you know, maybe in the broader places at work that you go. Maybe around the different places as we really consider how we would pray for the Riyal Malayu people across the oceans, that they too would know Jesus Christ. They would send more. Uh, that we would be involved in mission in every way possible and love those who do not know Christ and who are not reconciled to God. We are ministers of reconciliation. And we take that part of our identity. We, we must take that part of our identity seriously and move forward in trust. We then have been given a commission. Um, by God's grace and power alone, we can fulfill it, only by his power. So let me say this, let us rely on him. Embrace our part then in this cosmic reconciliation and enjoy him in highs and lows, knowing that he will use all of this to bring him ultimate glory and praise. Let's pray together. Lord on high, we thank you for who you are. We are thankful today that you have worked your plan, that you have done this from the beginning. This is not plan B. It's not an accident, but Lord, you and your grace and kindness have made it known to us so that we would not be left to think that just our salvation was all it was, but Lord, that would point to the fact that heaven and earth will again be united one day in Jesus Christ. We look forward to that day and we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But we also pray for the world who needs to be reconciled to you, that we would be ambassadors of reconciliation. We have the message, Lord. Teach us to speak the truth. Teach us, Lord, to love you. Teach us to pursue righteousness. May we lean completely on you. 
But Lord, you change us, deliver us from our sin, and may we be more like you today and more like you tomorrow and more like you to the day when we meet you face to face. We thank you for immense blessing to us in heavenly places. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.